0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group, were prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
1: In the past month, the news decided it had enough of its fixation on COVID-19 and decided to terminate its hiatus on geopolitical tensions. Well, basically any other news. It did so in pretty spectacular fashion by announcing the mobilization of Chinese troops to the line of actual control on the Indochina border. The territorial dispute that ensued saw China claiming the Galwan Valley as part of Chinese territory, a valley that Indian maps claim as their own. The conflict has escalated to a point where 20 Indian soldiers have been killed. And as of last week, Chinese troops have shown signs of withdrawing. South Asian disputes have been on the upswing for the past two years, with the fight for free Tibet, border skirmishes between India and Pakistan, and terrorist attacks in Sri Lanka, among several others. This is, of course, glancing over internal political turmoil, including the elongated network blackout in Kashmir. But this episode isn't about any of that. This is about the landlocked country that is surrounded by India and China, well, Tibet, on either side, but is rarely ever mentioned in international news reports. It's about a country that has been rife with youth protests against the ruling Communist Party for their non-urgent response to the ongoing pandemic. It's a country that in early June approved a new map that staked a cartographic claim on the disputed territories of Lipiyadhura, Lipu Lake and Kalapani. It is a country that bordered a British colonized India and has a fraught border with China but has always managed to remain an independent country. Hello listeners and thank you for tuning in to Matterfile. This is about Nepal. In this episode, we look at the history and politics of Nepal to try and understand the history behind their territorial dispute with India, as well as their current political leaning, especially with regard to their own internal affairs and the Indo-Chinese conflict. The next episode will briefly look at the socioeconomic profile of Nepal, as well as its natural resources, biodiversity, and landscape. So let's get right into it. A documented account of Nepal's history begins sometime between the 9th and 7th century BCE in what is known as the Kiranth period. There have been signs of earlier settlers in dispersed territories, in particular buffalo and cow farmers, that now lie within present-day Nepal, but there's no indication of any organized state. Scriptures, of course, do claim that the Kiranth dynasty was established after what is called the Ahir dynasty and the Gopal dynasty, but both these claims are circumstantial. The first Kiranth or Kirati king was named Yalamber who according to the ancient religious texts defeated the Ahir king Bhuvan Singh to establish control of the Kathmandu valley. The Kirants were thought to have been native to the northeastern Himalayas and under Yalamber managed to extend their area of control from the Tista river in the east to the Trishuli river in the west. The epic Mahabharata chronicles Yalamber as a contemporary of the Pandavas. But in the battle between the Pandavas and the Kauravs was planning on siding with the Kauravs. After Yalamber, the Kiranth dynasty saw around 30 kings rule Nepal for over a thousand years. In the 6th and 5th century BCE, there was a significant upheaval and significant progress in global religion and Nepal had a pretty central role to play as Siddharth Gautam, better known as Gautam Buddha, the founder of Buddhism, was born in the Lumbini district in Nepal. And the birthplace was recently commemorated a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The 3rd century BCE also saw Nepal host Ashok Maurya or Ashok the Great. There is some dispute as to whether the Kiranth dynasty came to an end and when it came to an end but it was succeeded by the Soma period for a brief century before giving way to the Lichavi dynasty, the principality west of the Kiranti ruled Kathmandu Valley and had attempted several invasions during Kiranth rule until the king Nimesha succeeded in overthrowing the Kirati king Gusti around 200 AD. The Lichhavi dynasty did not have to overthrow the Soma dynasty by force. Rather, the last Soma king Bhaskar Varma, before heading on a military expedition to the south of India named Bhumi Varma as his heir, who was a part of the Lichhavi dynasty. Manadev, a king from the Lichhavi period, is considered to be the first ruler of Nepal with historical authenticity and he managed to extend his empire from beyond the Gandaki in the west to Koshi in the east. Manadev was incredibly charitable towards Hindu brahmins as a follower of Vishnu and also favourable to Buddhism. Resultantly, his reign saw an increase in the number of Hindu temples and his religious benevolence invited for trade between India and Tibet, which were two strongholds for Buddhism. Under the subsequent Lichavi rule, Nepal developed trade and relations with both India and Tibet owing to lack of religious animosity and a tolerance for both Hinduism and Buddhism. The Lichavi dynasty would last till around 1200 CE before paving way for the Mala period. Note that both the Lichavi dynasty and the Kiranth period lasted about a thousand years and sculpted what we know as modern-day Nepal. Let's talk about the Malas. Arithi of Mala was the first mala king of Nepal. The Mala dynasty is chronicled to have had control of several peripheral districts before assuming control of the Lichavi dynasty. But before the 13th century, they were kept at bay by Lichavi kings. Between the Lichavi and Mala periods, there are some claims of intermediary Simrun and Thakuri rule which do make for some incredibly interesting reads. But for now, I want to come to the present day in as efficient a manner as possible. And so let's stick to the Malas. There are a few Mala kings who are worth mentioning. The most significant of whom was perhaps Malla, who ascended the throne in the late 14th century and implemented a range of socio-economic reforms. Under Malla, Nepal saw a regimented caste-driven system and driven division of labour, wherein depending on your caste of birth and subsequent education, you had to fulfil particular roles in society. But this caste-based segregation was not restricted to just Hindus, but also for Buddhists. And there were punishments instated for failure to adhere to your prescribed social role. Along with the codified system, he also subsequently codified a legal system. The punishments, also for the first time recorded in Nepal's history, followed a principle of proportional justice. That is, the punishments got more severe depending on the severity and the nature of the crime. To help boost the economy, Jayastati Mala created a standard measure called the Tenga, As a measure for trading in land. Finally, Hindu tradition saw an upswing under his rule and the Kathmandu Valley underwent a religion-inspired renaissance with the creation and restoration of several temples and his patronage for the arts saw several Sanskrit books written. This is also known as the Hinduization and Sanskritization of the Kathmandu Valley. The grandson of Jayastati Mala, Yakshamala, expanded the boundaries of his kingdom and divided the kingdom up between his three sons and daughter in about 1484 CE and the divided districts were Kathmandu, Bhaktipur and Patan. This division led the Mala rulers into internecine clashes and wars for territorial and commercial gains over the coming few centuries. Mutually debilitating wars gradually weakened them, which facilitated the conquest of the valley by Prithvi Narayan Shah of rule. Of the three kingdoms, Kantipur or Kathmandu flourished under the reign of Lakshmi Nara Singh and his son Pratap Mala, when trade flourished with Tibet. The kingdom of Patan, or also called Lalitpur, under Siddhi Nara Singh Mala saw increased patronage of both Buddhism and Hinduism that flourished in Patan. Bhaktapur, in contrast to the other two kingdoms, saw an initial slump in socio economic development before a resurgence of administrative and economic strength under the rule of Jagat Jyoti Mala, whose reign coincided with Pratap Singh Mala of Kantipur in the early 17th century. I'm not going to go into much greater detail about the three kingdoms and their relationship among each other, but before we introduce the Gorkha invasion, it's useful to understand what else was going on around Nepal at around this time. In the middle of the 16th century, Delhi fell to Mughal rule and while Mughal rulers never invaded Nepal several kings who were overthrown by Mughal rule fled for the Himalayas and sought shelter in regions of and surrounding Nepal and often annexed small regions to establish independent control in Nepali territory. Along the other border of Nepal, the Qing dynasty claimed control of Tibet and instated the 6th Dalai Lama in 1728. The Qing dynasty saw parts of northern Nepal as their own territory but never broached the sovereignty of the Malla dynasty and maintained fair trade ties with Nepal. The late Malla dynasty was also the first contact that Nepal had with Europe with Joao Cabral, the Portuguese missionary, visiting Nepal. The end to medieval Nepal came in the brief Gorkha rule that paved way to the Shah dynasty. While Gorkha presence in Nepal existed through the 16th century, initiated by Dravya Shah of Rajput descent, The Kingdom of Gorkha unified Nepal under Nara Bhupal Shah and Prithvi Narayan Shah from 1743 to 1779 CE and Prithvi Narayan Shah was vital in the construction of the Nepalese state that we know today. Before we introduce Nepal as we know it and the Shah dynasty, it's worth noting the influences of the Lichavi and Mala period on the culture and socio-political bent of Nepal. The Mala administrative setup was a canonical monarchy. With the king at its apex and several officers of state to help daily administration, as well as priests to assist with religious tasks. Village towns were given the right to self governance. This established a federal government of sorts, which allowed for the efficient conducting of Nepali rule. Kings of either dynasty were religiously minded and Hindu. While they were tolerant and helped Buddhism grow, the presence of a Hindu centre saw Buddhism shift its epicentre to Tibet as while there was a strong presence of Buddhism, a majority of the population was Hindu, which also informs the present-day demographic of Nepal. Further, the trope of religious tolerance persisted through the century and sees the peaceful coexistence of people of different faiths even today in Nepal, devoid of any form of religious separatism and conflict. The friendliness towards both India and China saw so the creation of trade routes that facilitated international trade and helped Nepal's economy thrive through both Lichavi and Mala periods. The lack of religious-political animosity also translates to the bilateral relations between Nepal-China and Nepal-India today. Well, until 20, un- until about 2020. But more on that later. So, back to Prithvi Narayan Shah. Prithvi Narayan Shah began his expansionist campaign by the annexation of Nuwa court and bel court on, that was under Lichavi road. Subsequently, he conquered several other small kingdoms to exponentially increase the size of Gorkha and Shah rule. In 1768, he invaded Kantipur, subsequently Lalitpur, and finally Bhaktapur in 1771 to reunify the three kingdoms of Nepal under Shah rule. Alongside these major annexations, Shah managed to build a strategic presence in the Kathmandu Valley and fend off British encroachment into Nepali territory. During his rule, he managed to unify the diverse ethno-political groups across various principalities and kingdoms and established a closed-door policy towards the British, creating the Kingdom of Gorkha, the immediate precursor to the modern-day Kingdom of Nepal, of which the name was also coined right about then. But the Shah dynasty, in true expansionist form, was not content with their state in Nepal and over a monetary dispute initiated the Sino-Nepalese War by invading Tibet in 1788. Gorkha armies won the first invasion against the Tibetan Tamang armies who were forced to sign the Treaty of Terung that agreed to pay Nepal an annual tribute. The Tamangs though reneged on this promise and requested the Qing dynasty to intervene. The refusal to pay led to a second Nepalese invasion but this time they were up against the Qing dynasty troops in 1792. After being pushed back from Tibet, the Qing dynasty ran a military intervention in Nepal but were unsuccessful in claiming any Shah territory which brought them back to square one. The stalemate that ensued saw the treaty of Betravati extended between the Qing and Shah dynasties to end any hostility towards one another. On reading an article about this, I did also learn a new word that I quite love. It's because in accordance with this treaty, both Nepal and Tibet had to accept suzerainty of the Qing emperor. Suzerainty, which I'm pretty certainly pronouncing wrong, is an interstate relationship in which a subordinate or subservient country has a right to self-governance but needs approval from its superior state before taking international action. Other historical sovereignties under the Qing Dynasty include Mongolia and Vietnam, while the Ottoman Empire established similar control over states like Wallachia and Romania. Strangely, Nepal, despite having agreed to such an unequal treaty, maintained its independent status and China, too, did not extend its umbrella of protection towards the country. In 1814, the Shah dynasty was invaded by the British East India Company, assisted by kingdoms of Patiala and Sikkim from Indian soil, in what is known as the Anglo-Nepalese War. This war was also inspired by economic concerns, as the British East India Company wanted to use established corridors in Nepal to trade with Tibet. The refusal of the Kingdom of Gorkha to allow British passage on ideological grounds and because of security concerns, saw Lord Hastings agitate the East India Company and David Oktaluni by informing them of potential sources of revenue that came from the mountains of Nepal and Tibet. The invading forces faced significant difficulty navigating the mountainous terrain but still managed to annex a few states that belonged to the Kingdom of Gorkha. In 1816, two years later, They forced the signing of the Treaty of Sogoli, which meant that Nepal lost all of Sikkim, along with some territories on the west, while the British East India Company would pay the kingdom 200,000 rupees annually to compensate for territorial loss. Although some lands were returned to Nepal, and the British payment was abolished soon after because of the return of these lands and the British reneging on the promise and the treaty itself. The current impact of the war extends beyond the loss of Sikkim, and to instatement of Gorkha Rifles Regiment in the British military. It is though worth mentioning that there is significantly more documentation of the British perspective of the invasion rather than of Gorkha attitudes and how they perceived the Treaty of Sigoli at least in English, and I apologise for this. The Shah rule was usurped by the Rana dynasty with the ascension of Jung Bahadur Rana to power in the mid-19th century. While the Shah monarchy still existed, all political authority was assumed by prime ministers from the Rana oligarchy. The Ranas codified laws to govern the kingdom of Gorkha and shaped a bureaucratic structure through which they exerted a tight centralized autocratic rule with isolationist foreign policies across nine Rana prime ministers. Note the evolution from king to prime minister despite the maintenance of centralized control here. The Rana strategically sided with the British in India's First War of Independence in 1857. Further, British Raj supported Nepali independence despite Chinese claims to suzerainty, and these acts of mutual backing saw the Treaty of Sagali superseded by the Treaty of Perpetual Peace and Friendship between the British Raj and the Kingdom of Rana in Nepal. The Rana Rule, along with codifying Nepali bureaucracy, also managed to abolish slavery in Nepal in 1924. While the First World War saw minimal involvement of Nepal, other than aiding the British cause through provision of troops, the Second World War saw the Kingdom of Nepal actively declare war on Germany in 1939 and Japanese troops on the Burmese front in British allyship. These saw the strengthening of Anglo-Nepali ties, which helped the consolidation of Rana authority and power. The Ranas operated on agnatic succession, which is a patrilineal system of inheritance, and the oligarchy took control of all positions of authority, assuming political, administrative, and military monopolies, as well as organizing internal trade and leveraging control on the economy and state treasury. The construction of a legal code by Jung Bahadur Rana saw him try and integrate religious and civil authority to unify the country into a single social system. They did this by encouraging a Hinduization of the Nepali population through legitimizing Hinduism and the adoption of a universal caste system, both geared towards subjugating ethnically diverse tribes to higher castes in Nepal, which were of course the ranas. For the same purpose, education was only available to the elite. The economic corruption meant that economic progress was slow, but not halted as they maintained international trade with China and India. While this integration was mostly successful, Owing to geographic barriers of communication, the Far East and West regions were not fully integrated and acted almost as military buffers for the Rana Empire, acting largely independently. While they managed to maintain the sovereignty of Nepal, the despotic control of Rana autocracy lasted till 1950. Owing to the influence of the Indian independence movement and internal familial tensions, there was a search for democratization of Nepal. Fearing a revolution, the Rana rule tried to buy favour with the new Indian government by signing a treaty that effectively left Nepal an economic extension of India. In the meantime, there had been the formation of the Nepali National Congress. The Nepali National Congress was conceived to subvert autocratic control but was suffering from internal divisiveness until about 1950 when a branch led by the Koirala brothers Yes, I know they sound more like a gangster duo than a leader of a pro-democracy political party, but the Koirala brothers and their military branch, the Liberation Army or the Mukti Sena, along with other liberation movements like Praja Parishad, agitated for change. The tipping point was when a descendant of the emasculated monarchy King Tribhuvan fled to Delhi and helped instigate an armed revolt against the Rana administration. This was the coming together of pro-democracy movements And an absolved monarchy under the Shah rule coming together to free Nepal of its despotic oligarchy. The result of this uprising was the signing of a tripartite agreement in Delhi between the King Tribhuvan, the National Congress, and the Rana oligarchy, and in 1951, a coalition government representing all three parties was formed. The first democratic elections were held in 1959, and BP Koirala was elected Prime Minister. But King Mahindra, Son of King Tribhuvan declared the election results void in a royal coup d'etat and re-established monarchical control in Nepal. He constructed a panchayat system in a partyless control of Nepal, which was a pyramidal structure with regional assemblies having some power, but power was concentrated with the king once again re-establishing the quasi-federalism that Nepal had seen for quite some time. There is a trope of autocratic consolidation of power, leaving masses within a country dissatisfied. And resulting in revolt which was revisited once again in 1990. In 1990, there was a reinvigoration of the pro-democracy multi-party movement coordinated by the leftist coalition, the United Left Front along with the Nepali National Congress. The movement galvanized large factions of students calling for national strikes and riots against the police and the monarchy until in April of 1990, the king removed a ban on all political parties. This movement, Also called the People's Movement, drafted a constitution which forfeited political control to the people and implemented universal adult suffrage in Nepal. There were, of course, teething problems as there was a massive gulf between the educated elite leaders of parties and the common voters in Nepal due to a scaling back of education under the Rana rule for the caste system. Albeit this, the Nepali Congress won the first multi party election in 1991 and assumed control of the government. The United Left Front, that had allied with the Nepali National Congress during the democratic agitations that led to the 91 elections, went on to form the United National People's Front, the third largest party to contest the 91 elections in Nepal. This then evolved to bifurcate into the Communist Party of Nepal, one of which was the Maoist faction, after internal tensions in the United National People's Front. The Communist Party's Maoist faction radicalized and carried out several armed attacks in 1996 to initiate the Nepali civil war between the Maoist party and the government. Despite a ceasefire in 2001, violent conflict raged on till 2006, amassing a total death count of over 17,000 people. Strangely enough, the Nepali government was backed by the US, UK and China, while the Maoists were backed by majorly the Maoist faction in the Communist Party of India. In 2005, the conflict was becoming increasingly violent, King Gyanendra assumed political control on the pretext of an incompetent democratically elected government to try curb the communist party. This resulted in the violent resistance transforming into a pro-democracy movement to ultimately overthrow the monarch of Nepal. This was of course the second time the monarchy tried coming back after democracy has been established in Nepal. In 2006, the monarchy of Nepal was once again finally overthrown through the democracy movement and the king called on the Seven-Party Alliance that had parliamentary control to resume political power. The Seven-Party Alliance faced pushbacks from the Maoist party who demanded the formation of a new constituent assembly and a complete abolition of the monarchy. The creation of a new constituent assembly saw a temporary cease in the civil war. Nepal subsequently became a secular state, removing its status as the world's only Hindu kingdom, and in 2008 became a federal republic. Meeting the goals of the Communist Party's revolution and the Maoist Party joined mainstream politics. In 2015, a new constitution was promulgated, dividing Nepal into seven provinces with a separation of executive, judiciary and legislative. And that finally brings us to now. We'll talk about the economic conditions of Nepal on the next episode. But as you might assume, the unstable government up until 2015 meant that economic progress has been slow. Nepal currently has three political parties, of which the Nepali Congress and the Communist Party espoused democratic socialism, and in the 2017 election, the Communist Party won six out of seven provinces, with K.P. Sharma Oli as Prime Minister. So we have a slight conundrum. To its south, Nepal had an India which liberalized during their communist movement in the 1990s, but its current ruling party favors the majority Hindu demographic of Nepal. But to its north, it has the Communist Party of China as an ideological backer. So where does it lie geopolitically? Nepal has tried maintaining friendly ties with both China and India and gains favour from other countries in the surrounding region, especially Bangladesh, and often uses Chittagong as a port to limit its dependence on India, considering its landlock. It also has close bilateral ties with other countries, including Bhutan, and plays an active role in the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation or the SAARC and votes for the non-aligned movement in the United Nations it is further a member of the IMF the World Bank the World Trade Organization and the Asian Development Bank Nepal's engagement with China has increased over the past 3 years since they signed the Belt and Road Initiative or One Belt One Road agreement with China in 2017 China has been providing aid and loans to Nepal since the abolition of its monarchy in 1950s and has been the largest source of FDI or foreign direct investment into Nepal for a while. After the earthquakes in Nepal in 2016, which we'll cover slightly more in the next episode, China provided large sums of grant investment to help repair roads and highways. At the same time, India placed a blockade on Kathmandu in 2015 as it was not in favour of the new provincial constitution. This was probably the tipping point which has since skewed Nepali relations in favor of China over India. The BRI in Nepal has the primary goal of increasing trans-Himalian connectivity with the extension of the qing Tibetan Railway into Nepal. It further wishes to develop trans-border economic zones and increase trade between China, Tibet and Nepal. Finally, this would help improve trade with Sikkim and Bhutan due to close proximity but lack of geographic access to Nepal. Meanwhile, India faces a dilemma in that it hasn't formally engaged with China's BRI and has been endorsed by the US, polarizing it in the international US-China dispute. It has though maintained friendly relations with Nepal and continues to trade bar the 2015 blockade that was lifted after Nepal signed the BRI. There has though been an ongoing land dispute on the Nepali-Indian border over the region of Kalapani and Nepal's legislature amended its constitution to include the territories of Lipulekh, Lake, Kalapani, and Limpia Dhura in 2019, which India claims as Indian territory. On May the 8th, India's defense minister virtually inaugurated a new 80 km road in the Himalayas, connecting to the border with China at the Lipu Lake Pass. The Nepali government protested immediately, contending that the road crosses territory that it claims and accusing India of changing their status quo without diplomatic consultations. This move has led to the mobilization of troops to the border, and the dispute is seeking resolution, only worsened by an increasingly deteriorating situation along the Indo Chinese border. A final mention on internal Nepali politics as currently there are various ongoing protests against the Oli government for mismanaging the COVID 19 crisis, with the government responding mostly in silence. I could stipulate why, strategically, the Oli government has agitated against the Indian road. Only just now, while being fully aware that it was being constructed over the past six to twelve months, as well as mobilizing troops to the Indochina border just very recently as opposed to in the past if they thought there was an encroachment on Nepali territory earlier. But I'm gonna leave the speculation up to you such that you can read on it. There have of course been reports that Oli might be acting at the behest of China such that they can capitalize on Indo-Chinese tensions through the mobilization of troops and through the cutting off of imports and exports, but economically this might come back to bite Nepal considering about 75% of their total import-export trade is centered through India. There have also been other reports that this might just be a diversion from the Oli government considering the pressure they've come under for the mismanagement of the COVID-19 situation. I'd encourage you to go on and read a lot more about Nepal now that you have a broad understanding of what their geopolitical situation and landscape currently looks like and what the historical context behind their current geopolitical scenario is. In the next episode, of course, we will talk a bit more about the economy to help you tie together what their economic situation looks like and how that translates into pressure on the Oli government or is being weaponized by the opposition against the Oli government. As of July 10th, 2020, Nepal has placed a ban on all Indian news media networks for claiming that they have unfairly portrayed their Prime Minister K.P. Orly in light of the recent escalation of tensions between India and Nepal. It is yet to be seen where the situation goes from now, but my guess is that it is not going to de-escalate anytime soon, especially with increasing tension between India and China as well. In this brief and comprehensive, but by no means exhaustive episode, we have briefly glanced over the history of Nepal Talking about the Kiranth dynasty, the Mala period, the Lichhavi period, and the current Gorkha reign that led to the Shah regime, the monarchy, and finally the current Communist Party and Oli's rule. I'd encourage you once again to read a lot more about this to better inform yourselves as to what's going on in this small landlocked country wedged between India and China. In the next episode of course we discuss the economy and all things economic, but for now